Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. In a moment, we'll read the first seven verses together. What are you expecting God to do today? What are you expecting God to do here as we meet together today? I dare say, far too often we have so little expectation on Sunday morning. So little expectation that God would do anything. And with so little expectation, why are we surprised if nothing does happen? But what if we had a great expectation that God would do something great among us this morning? And every time we open God's word, every time we hear from God what he would say to us through his word, that God is at work, that God is working. Now, it might not always be visible. It might not always be how we think the work should be done. We live in a world of bigger and better. Yet we expect God to work this morning in great and miraculous and amazing ways, even if it's unseen. Even if we can't measure it. Even if maybe we never even know it. But I wonder if our expectations would be high. We expect great things because we worship and serve a great God. So our expectations are always and ever dependent upon Him. Would you stand with me as we read the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. After I read those seven verses, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together, because we are thankful, we'll say, Thanks be to God. Let's read God's holy word this morning. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, since it has pleased you to reveal the mystery of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom which is at enmity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to talk this morning about one of the most beloved truths in the Bible. And yet, it is also one of the most despised truths in the Bible. That's how it often is in our world, living as Christians. The truth is despised because it is the truth that so many people find offensive. Pastors in the church in 2 Timothy 4.2 are called to this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What are pastors to do? Preach the word when it's preaching season and when it's not preaching season. You have a license all year round. Preach it. And then did you hear how he describes the preaching? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove and rebuke. Those are words that we don't like to hear. That's two-thirds of the way that Paul describes preaching. We might think, let's get to the exhorting, pastor. But supporting those words, reprove and rebuke, is the understanding that there's something wrong in people's lives, something that needs to be corrected, something that needs to be even confronted. How difficult this is even in the church even among Christians. How many people come skipping through the doors saying, I just can't wait to be rebuked today. (laughs) Who has ever said to any pastor, I can't wait until you reprove me today. How much more in the world? We know that proclaiming the truth will be offensive in this world. Proclaiming the truth has always been offensive when it slams into sinful human nature. So why is this truth that we're going to talk about today, why is it so despised? Why do people hate it so? Because it denies the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. 
universal in the sense that these verses deny that God is everyone's father. So this truth is exclusive. That's why people despise it. They want everything to be inclusive. They want everyone to be the same. They want an ecumenicalism because they think it will bring greater progress to society, greater progress to the world, greater progress to deal with all of man's problems. But what is it that Christians say? What is it that we who follow Jesus Christ say? God is not everyone's father. The teaching of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is to be seen as dangerous because the underlying idea being expressed is universalism, universal salvation. That everyone is saved and it makes no difference their religious commitment, not to mention their ethical commitment. It's the teaching that says everyone goes to heaven. But no, not everyone goes to heaven. That's a lie that leads people to jump headlong into the lake of fire. What is this doctrine that we as Christians find to be a beloved truth? It's the doctrine of adoption. Have you thought about adoption lately? How important is this doctrine to your life? And would you peg the doctrine of adoption as indispensable to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would we say, I want to understand it, I want to be enveloped by the truth of adoption because I want to know the gospel I want to preach and rehearse the gospel in my life because I want to know the great truth of of adoption. I want to be reminded of that daily, moment by moment. It's not a truth that I want to get away from. It's not a truth I want to forget. I want to know that I've been adopted by God. Paul thought adoption was indispensable to the gospel. That's why he puts it here in his fight for the gospel. He has just proclaimed, if you go back a few verses in Galatians 3, 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. He wants the Galatians to know the reality and believe the reality that they are sons of God in Christ Jesus through faith. But how did they get there? How did they get to this point? Now at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is going to rephrase the argument he has just been making to say it another way. And he zooms in to take a closer look at this idea of what does it mean to be a son of God. He wants to show the Galatians and so us the intricate working of how it is that we can be called sons of God. When you hear that term, Sons of God, that Christians are sons of God. Is that an encouraging word to you? Is it a comforting word? Paul wants us to know that this idea lies at the heart of the Christian faith. 
we might ask those questions. What is the goal of creation? What is the goal of redemption? Where is everything headed? If it is not headed to that place where God will dwell with his people in a perfect relationship where we will call him father and where he will call us his children. A recent theologian who has just passed away in the last month or so, I believe, his name was J.I. Packer. This is what he has to say about this doctrine of adoption. Quote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. End quote. So, according to this line of thought, how well do you understand Christianity? Does the doctrine of adoption prompt worship in your life? Does it prompt you to get on your knees and pray? Does it direct your life? And if it does direct our lives in these important ways, we should know that we are sons of God. So how do we know that we are sons of God Two ways that we know that this morning. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. But number one, we begin by remembering, or remember, you were a slave under the tyranny of sin. Remember, you were a slave under the tyranny of sin. Paul begins here with an illustration. It's an illustration that picks up on what he has already said. It's a restatement of verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3, which says this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul was saying there that this law was temporary. It was only a guardian until the coming faith would be revealed. But now Paul says, let me say it another way. And he says it by way of illustration. He goes back to this idea of being an heir. Except now, in his illustration, this is a very young child who is an heir. And being a child, even though he's an heir, he is not his own. Paul says that he's no better than a slave. He doesn't possess anything yet. He doesn't have freedom yet. He owns everything, but... What does it matter if he's no better than a slave? An heir, but yet a slave, is not the condition that you want to remain in. So the heir, it says, was under guardians and managers. This word guardian would talk about someone who would watch over the heir, would watch over their life, would take care of them, would help oversee the upbringing of the child. The managers here 
likely refers to those who took care of the finances or took care of the property. So they were taking care of the physical aspects of the inheritance that the heir would then receive when the time had come. And Paul goes on to say, so this young child, he's no better than a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers until a particular time, until a date that is set by the father. Notice who's in control of this. The father's in control of this. The father's the one setting the date. Says, yes, now my child has come of age and now everything that I've prepared is given to him. In Paul's day, in ancient culture, usually this day, this date, was around the age of 14. But sometimes a father could extend this date to the child turning 20 or even 25 before they accessed everything of their inheritance. But why does Paul use this illustration? He is talking again about the time in salvation history when the law, the Mosaic law, was was in full force. And he's saying that such a time when the Mosaic law was in full force was a time of infancy. It was in a, a time of immaturity. It was a temporary time, a time that was looking forward. Isn't that what a child does? I can't wait until I'm older. I can't wait until I get out of the house. I can't wait until I'm all on my own. What a natural and good inclination. But how often we see that as something actually that could turn very disastrous in a child's life. They think, I want to get out of here because I want to be free. No rules, no one telling me what to do. I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want. My own person. What happens to those children When they leave, they're more enslaved than ever. They're more bound by their own sin than ever. It's not freedom from their slavery, it's just more slavery. But Paul is saying there is going to come a day that that, that there is going to be freedom. It's a temporary time, and so this time of the heir being a, a child and being enslaved and being under guardians and managers is going to come to an end at a date that is set by the Father. From this illustration now, as we move into verse 3, Paul highlights being a slave. Paul here uses the first person plural, we, to which I believe he is talking about everyone, Jews, Gentiles, specifically the Galatians. So he's saying, We can relate to this as well. When we were children, we were enslaved. That is what it was like to be under the law. Paul has already said what it was like to be held captive and imprisoned under the law. But now he goes a bit further to say we were slaves. Paul is pressing home our previous condition. He wants wants us to know just how desperate we were. He wants us to know how lost we were. Were you ever desperate? Were you ever lost? Were you ever enslaved? 
And how can you be sure that you've ever been found if you've never been lost? How often I fear that people think, well, I wasn't that bad. Paul wants us to know we were enslaved. (laughs) We were enslaved to those things that are called the elementary principles of the world. Paul is going to elaborate on this more in verses 8 and 9 when he calls these elementary principles weak and worthless. But we need to understand what this is. This is some difficult truth here because we're trying to figure out what does Paul mean by elementary principles of the world. Some would say that Paul is referring to what people thought were the basic building blocks of the world. Namely, those would have been earth, air, fire, and water. And that Paul would be saying that there were those people who would be elevating these things and so worshiping these things. They would make them their gods. It might make us think of even Romans 1, 24, where Paul, speaking of sinful man, says this, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for what? For a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the problem with mankind, is it not? Worshipping created things of this world. Worshipping the material things of this world. That is where some would say that being under the Mosaic law led some people to focus on material things, to focus on circumcision, to focus on dietary laws, to focus on days or festivals or Sabbath and make them the substance, make them everything and completely forget or ignore the Christ to whom they pointed. And don't miss this. This is still a temptation today to worship material things. To worship created things. To elevate external things in our hearts. Others would say that these elementary principles refer to demonic spirits. That's why if you read the NIV it says that these are elemental spiritual forces in the world. They see this as those evil powers that are prevailing over sinful mankind and dominating their lives. Those who are following the prince of the power of the air. Maybe as we think about these two explanations, whether it's the basic building blocks, the created things that people are elevating to worship, or whether it's demonic forces that are holding people captive, maybe we should not see these views so far apart. Because in thinking that you can keep all the rules and follow legalist superstition, maybe there is something to be said that with that belief there is demonic domination. You're trapped. Maybe through all this we should listen to one commentator, Moises Silva, who says this about the elementary principles of the worlds. The elementary principles of the world, he says, may be said to cover anything in which sinners place their trust apart from the living God revealed in Christ. Any such object turns into a God and the sinner becomes a slave. Is there anything 
that you would place your trust in other than the living God that's revealed in Christ. I think at the same time, it's good to remember in the context into which Paul is writing. If this slavery is tied to being under the law, then it is also slavery that is tied to being under sin. Remember what we have already said. The law was never meant to make you righteous. Rather, the purpose of the law was meant to show you your sin. It was meant to show you how utterly helpless and hopeless you were. It was good in doing that. The the law was good in showing you your sin. That actually is a mercy of God in your life. But the law could never make you righteous. The law could never change you. This is where mankind goes wrong because we tend to think that the law is a stepping stone out of our depravity, a path to freedom, a way to life. But what happens when we live this way? What happens when we think the law can save us or the law can change us? We stand condemned because we can never save ourselves. And instead of liberating ourselves, we remained enslaved where the God of this world would love for us to live going round and round and round in the cul-de-sac of despair. If that's where you live this morning, if you live in the cul-de-sac of despair, hear these words, come out. Don't stay there. Run to Christ. Receive Christ and so be lifted up from the pit of despair because then you will know no condemnation, no guilty verdict, but you will know forgiveness, cleansing, clothed in love and righteousness. It's the tyrannical reign of sin that this life of the one that is enslaved to the elementary principles of this world is trapped in, enslaved to. Do you, dear Christian, remember that you were at one time enslaved, that that was your state, that that was your soul, and do you realize that there was nothing that you could do to get yourself out of that state? Why does Paul want us to meditate on that? Why would he say, don't forget? Because it's against this black gloomy backdrop of our enslavement that the glorious gospel shines all the brighter with all of its brilliance and the full force of God's saving action is pressed upon us that that much more so that we see the need of adoption and so that brings us to point two God sent his son to redeem you so you would receive adoption God sent his son to redeem you so you would receive adoption. We come now to verse four. This great contrast. But when the fullness of time had come, the time of infancy, the time of immaturity, it's past. The reign of law has, the uh, the reign of the law has ceased when the fullness of time had come and so it's the fullness of time that lines up with Paul's illustration of the date set by the Father. Here is the fullness of time, the time of God's own choosing, the time of God's perfect design, the time that God had appointed. 
This was God's definite plan that he had put into place. And what happened at this climax? What happened when the fullness of time had come? What happened to usher in this age of fulfillment? What happened when the whole cosmos held its breath? God acted and broke into the darkness that covered this world, broke into the darkness that was in mankind. God acted to bring us out of our enslavement and gave us what we did not earn and what we did not deserve. God initiated salvation. It's nothing less than God the Father sending his son into the world. It's nothing nothing less than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it's in God's sending his son that we see God the Father giving his son. You know the verse, don't you? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now do you remember verse 17? For God did not, what, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you see that it's in God's sending of his son that God is giving us his son? And here is a hint to the preexistence of the son. He is the eternal son sent from God the Father. It speaks to Christ's full deity. Jesus is God. And it speaks to his authority. He is being sent by God with God's authority. How the world fights against this. How the world does not want to accept the deity of Jesus, how much less his authority. But this is why we know him as Lord. But Paul doesn't stop here. He also says that this son is born of a woman. Why does Paul say that? I don't necessarily think that this is primarily a defense of the virgin birth. I believe that Paul believed in the virgin birth, taught the virgin birth, but I think Paul is highlighting something different here. Why does he say born of a woman? Because he wants us to remember that Jesus became like us. He wants us to remember that the son became a man. It highlights Jesus' humanity. Jesus, fully God and also fully man. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form from Philippians 2. And remember also, I think what Paul is saying here, being born of a woman, he wants us to draw our minds all the way back to Genesis. Where what what is it? It's the seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Here it is, the one that you've been waiting for, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman who would come to, who would reverse the curse, the one who would come to save you, the one who would come to make everything right. This is the one, the eternal son who has come when God sent him. And it also says that he was born under the law. Now, I have have interpreted the idea of being under the law to mean that one is under sin, that sin has control, that sin dominates the one who is under the law. How can Jesus then be born under the law? Because he is the exception to the rule that proves the rule. He is the one who is without sin. Sin 
had no control over him, had no power over him. He was born under the law and lived obediently to God's law. Therefore, what? He could take the curse of the law upon himself and he could so free us who are under the power of the law and the power of sin. And this, being born under the law, shows that Jesus came to identify with sinful mankind. It's the same reason why Jesus was baptized. He stood in solidarity with those who are under the law. And rather than being bound by the curse, he breaks the curse of the law. He did not succumb to the curse. He crushed the curse, triumphant, victorious. And it's these that bring us now to the marvelous word that comes from the work of the cross. It says that, then we read verse five, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem us. What does that word redeem mean? Redeem means to be released by a payment. It was the payment Jesus made through his blood on the cross whereby he paid our full redemption price so that we might be freed from our enslavement. Listen to what Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says. In him we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you hear it there? Redemption through what? Through Jesus' blood. For what? For the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to what? According to the riches of his grace. It was the bounty, the riches of his grace that God redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And he didn't just give us a little bit of his riches. He lavished the riches of his grace upon us. He bathed us with the riches of his grace. He redeemed us who were under the law. He redeemed us who were under the dominion of sin. He released us from being enslaved to our own sin and despair. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed. Redeemed. You know the rest. His child and forever I am. There are only two ways to know Jesus Christ. You either know him as judge or you know him as the redeemer. And look at what Paul is saying. Paul is saying Dear brothers and sisters, you go back to that old way, you're saying you only want to know Jesus as judge. To judge your works, what you've done, how you've performed, how well you have your life together. That's not the Jesus you want. You want Jesus that is the Redeemer. The Jesus who forgives all of your sin. The Jesus who wipes all of your sins away. The Jesus who cleanses you with his own blood. 
That's the, that's the Jesus that you want because then what? Then I will glory in my Redeemer. To know Him as Redeemer is to know joy and life and freedom. And so God sent His Son to redeem in order to do what? To accomplish the purpose of adopting. Notice, as we get here to the end of verse 5, so that we might what? Receive adoption. I love that. It's not our striving for adoption. And this is where Paul now, as he applies these truths to the illustration, changes it a little bit. There's a freedom in his application to the illustration because if you remember the illustration, we have no inclination that this heir doesn't belong to the family. But now when Paul says, so that we might receive adoption as sons, we come to see that we weren't in the family. <laughs> we didn't belong. We weren't an heir by birth. But what? We have been transferred to the family of God, brought into the family of God, given all the rights and privileges as one who is a part of the family of God. And the work of adoption is from beginning to end the work of God in our life accomplished through Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What are we to make of this important doctrine of adoption? What are we to make of now receiving adoption as sons? What are we to make that it is through the doctrine that we can call God as our Father? we see that the fatherhood of God is not an act of nature. It's not just the way that it is in this world. It's not what everyone is born into. No, the fatherhood of God is a miracle. Adoption is a supernatural work done by God in your heart and in your life. This is why this truth is so beloved by us. Because it's something amazing. It's something that should make us sit up and say, wow, this is a miracle of God wrought in my heart and life. I couldn't, I couldn't get myself adopted. It's the very power of God working in us. And so what is it that would make us appreciate this doctrine even more? It's understanding that we had no place of privilege. In ancient culture, if a wealthy couple who had great possessions and money didn't have a child, they would often adopt a fully grown man to take over. And when they would adopt, they would want someone of good character upstanding, trustworthy to carry on their family name. Who is it that God adopts? 
God adopts the weak, the ungodly, the sinners. God adopts orphans, those with no prospects, no hope in this world. God adopts those of bad character. Praise God that his ways are not our ways because based upon man's understanding, no one would adopt us. No one would touch us with a 39 and a half foot pole. There is nothing in us that would make us worthy of adoption. We were the last child in the orphanage that would have been adopted. We were the one that the workers at the orphanage looked upon and thought to themselves, there is no way that that child will ever be adopted. No one will ever want them. They are ugly, they are deformed, they are smelly, they have more problems and lasting conditions that will only lead to a life of struggle and turmoil. And when people would come into the orphanage, they would usher people right past us, not so much as a consideration, nothing to say about us that would commend anyone to adopt us. But when God comes in, what does he say? I choose this person. I want this person. And nothing would sway his choosing, nothing would deter him from his decision that seems irrational, illogical, and unwise. No, God knew exactly what he was doing when he adopted us. And his desire was so strong. He sent his son to die on the cross. He sent his son to redeem us. He sent his son to save us. And this is the adoption that you know in your life? Is this the adoption that redounds to the praise of his glorious grace? That's been lavished upon you, God adopting you into his family, making you his child, showing you what it is to know the God of the universe, the God who is sovereign over all, the God who is infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and to know this God as your good and loving Father. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have ceased to be an object of God's wrath. And now you are an object of his amazing love. 